I'd like to read some scripture with you this morning. We'll read this passage again in a little bit, but I'd like to, this is the heart of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning together. We're in Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for these songs that others have written and that we get to sing to each other um, as we celebrate your wonderful grace that you've given to all of us. Father, I don't know who needs to hear this um, message this morning, but we pray that your word will penetrate each of our hearts this morning. You say that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and we pray that it will pierce our hearts this morning and that you would help each of us to see what we need to see and hear what we need to hear this morning. Next Sunday, or maybe on the 25th, Bonnie and I will give a, a ministry update, but today the focus is on Colossians chapter 3. And if we were to publish a title for it, which we won't, but if we did, we I would have called it Thinkers and Thankers, Grace and Gratitude in Colossians 3. And you saw that all the songs we sang this morning were on about grace and gratitude. Now, if you don't remember anything else from what I have to say this morning, I hope you remember this part. We're supposed to be thinkers and thankers, thinking about what God has done and thanking him in all we do and say and think. If we live that way, we will embody the saying that I heard 40 years ago as a new believer. An attitude of gratitude is an unending prayer. That's it. That's the main point. So if you want to know how I got that from Colossians 3, you can keep listening. At least once a year or so, Fran asks me, what, are, what spiritual insights are you gaining from what you're translating right now? And sometimes I don't have an immediate answer, but this summer when she asked, I did. Here's what I found to be very interesting and challenging in Colossians. When we got to Colossians 3.15, in Colossians 3.15, Paul does something unusual. He tells the Colossians to be thankers. He didn't say we should thank God or keep on thanking God. He said, be thankful or be thankful people or be thankful. It's the same sort of word. It's an adjective, the same kind of word that faithful is. It doesn't describe what somebody does on a specific day or what they do often. It's describing their character. It's describing what this person is like, who they are. It stood out to me because that's the only place in the whole New Testament where that specific word is used in that form. It's used three other times in Colossians, and we'll get to one of those. But another interesting thing um, is that in Greek, that word for giving thanks is also related to the word for grace. 
You've heard that word, charis. It's on lots of things that Christians do. The church that Bonnie and I are part of in Florida has a charis Christian bookstore. And you've heard of people named Charity or Charis. Charis is about giving. And the word for thanking, you charis, is about responding to charis, responding to grace. It's like gratitude in our language is the right response to grace in our attitude. In both of those languages, the words for grace and gratitude are related to each other. That doesn't happen in every language, but it's nice when it does. But Paul wants the Colossians to be thinkers before they are thankers. You can't be thankful for nothing. You can't just be generically grateful or generically thankful. You have to have something or a whole bunch of somethings to be thankful for. And Paul reminds the Colossians in this letter that they have a lot to be thankful for. He wrote this letter because in the church at Colossae, a bunch of false teachers had come in and they were teaching that Christians needed more than Jesus. It was one of the first in a long line of movements of people saying that you need Jesus plus. Jesus plus this activity. Jesus plus this ritual. Jesus plus this or Jesus plus that. One way to think about <clears throat> the outline of the book of Colossians is this. Chapter 1, you already know the gospel and Jesus is awesome. Chapter 2, this other gospel they're trying to teach you, it's totally bogus. It's empty. Jesus already defeated all that stuff they're trying to get you to do and you're totally dead to it anyway. Chapter 3, because you're dead, you're already dead to all that, and because Christ has made you alive in him, focus on him instead of that stuff they're trying to get you to focus on and live a life of gratitude. Chapter 4, we brothers and sisters in Christ are partners in the true gospel. Well, let's have a, just a real brief look at chapters 1 and 2. We're going to get to chapter 3. That's where we want to be most of the time. But we want to know the context of what he's talking about. In chapter 1, he reminds the Colossians that they've already heard and they've already accepted the gospel. And he tells them they've heard it, they've understood it, they learned it. He uses all kinds of words like that to describe they've already received this gospel. And he, rev he reviews with them all the things God has done for them through Christ. Have a look sometime at Colossians 1 with a pen or a pencil in your hand and underline all the things that he tells them God has done for him. You'll find that it's a really, really long list. And he asks them to think about what they already know because he wants it to affect the way they live. In verses 15 through 20, we have that famous passage where he talks about how awesome Christ is, nothing is greater than him. Then he reminds the Colossians of who they are in Christ. And then he reminds them not so subtly, about his authority as an apostle. In chapter 2, which again, we could look at a summary of it like this, this other gospel is totally bogus, it's empty, Jesus defeated all that stuff already, and you're dead to it anyway. In that chapter, verse 4 is kind of the key. He says, I say this so that. It's always good to pay attention to the so that's in Scripture, isn't it? What is the purpose so that no one may delude you with false, with plausible arguments. Don't fall for it. What they have to say sounds good, but think about how ridiculous it is to suggest that something is better than Jesus. You could go through chapter 2 sometime and look at all the contrasts between what is dead and what is alive, what is empty and what is full. 
Sometime you could go through both chapters 1 and 2 and look at all the ways Paul talks about knowledge, knowing, and learning, and so on. The foundation of their being able to live a life of thankfulness is knowing all those things. The point in those first two chapters is that they already know Christ, they already know the gospel, and they've already died to the stuff the false teachers want them to focus on. And all that empty legalism and sacramentalism is useless. Christ was victorious over all these things that they want you to focus on. What a waste of time. In fact, you are alive in Christ and you're dead to all that stuff. That's chapter 2. Colossians 3 we could summarize by saying, because Christ already made you alive in him, focus on him and live a life of gratitude. Let's go through it together verse by verse. Verses 1 and 2, if then you have been raised with Christ, or you could translate it, since then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, I don't know how many times I heard this verse without actually looking at the context, which, of course, is chapter 2, what he's just spoken of, what he's just written about where he's talking about all these earthly things that the peop these false teachers are trying to get them to do, trying to get them to focus on. Paul is saying they're irrelevant now. So he says, since you're raised with Christ above all that stuff, focus on the things that are where Christ is. They should focus on Christ and what he has done and who he is rather than following the rules the false teachers were telling them that they should follow. All that do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, all that stuff. That's what he means by set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Verses 3 and 4, let's read them. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, is, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Your spiritual life, your eternal life, which has already begun, is hidden with Christ in God. People can't see your position in Christ based on what they see you doing and by watching you follow their rules. Your life is hidden where they can't see it. It's hidden with Christ in God, but it will be revealed. When Christ appears, we also will appear with him in glory. Then it will be clear that we are one with Christ. We are his, and all that other stuff that they want to focus on won't matter. <clears throat> because of that, all of that, Paul tells them what they should do. So let's have a look at what they should do. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. So he's telling them, since you're dead, they should put, on, they should put the old practices to death. Notice this theme we see in many places in the Bible. The already and the not yet. They're already dead to these things. There are, they've been made alive to Christ, but they still have to put these things to death, the already and the not yet. Notice also that this is a list of things that other people don't see you doing. All of them are bad, but one is marked out as idolatry, covetousness. And we could talk about how our entire society is designed uh, based on covetousness, but we'll leave that for another preacher at another time. Verse 7, in these, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. These are all things that people do to each other and usually right out in the open where other people see and hear what's going on. Verse 9, he says, don't lie to each other, seeing that you have put off the old self, taken it off like you take off a jacket with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here's another big thing people do to each other. They lie. Their new self, which they've put on like you've put on clothes, is already there. It's new, but it's still being renewed. Again, the already and the not yet. How is it renewed? In knowledge, he says. Just like he focused on, on in chapters 1 and 2, the things they already know, and he told them that knowing those things should cause them to lead a new life in Christ and ignore the false teachers. Here he says it again. This new life is renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Note that the new life has a creator. It's God who created it. And knowing him is how we become more like him. It doesn't come from having some fantastic ecstatic experience. It comes from knowing him. That's how we are renewed. And that's why Paul puts so much emphasis in the first two chapters about what they know. He's reminding them what they already know. Verse 11. Here, he's talking about in God's family. Here, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. What a radical idea in first century to say that. We're all equal now. Does it matter? He says at first, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. Jews divided the world into two groups of people, didn't they? Jews and everybody else. And what words did they use to describe those people? Uncircumcised, Gentiles, and sometimes Greeks, because the Greek was the popular language throughout the world. Then he talks about, then he mentions barbarians. Well, Greeks acted the same way. Two kinds of people, us and them, Greeks and barbarians. Barbarians are all those vast, uncivilized people that just haven't had the benefit of Greek language and culture. So they look down on everybody who wasn't Greek. And then we come to a group that everybody didn't like, Jews and Gentiles alike, the Scythians from near the Black Sea. Everybody thought they were gross. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with them. But it doesn't matter whether you're from that group or not. We're all one in Christ. Slave and free. Here's another distinction that divided people. And I'm sure you know, but most people in our country do not know, that slavery in Paul's time was not about ethnic prejudices. It wasn't about one race exploiting another. It was about, uh, it was a, an economic thing. For the most part, people became slaves because they went broke. They couldn't pay their debts. They couldn't go bankrupt because bankruptcy didn't exist. So they themselves, they had to sell themselves and remain slaves until their debts were paid, and that wasn't easy to, to accomplish. All of these distinctions are gone in Christ. We're all Christians, Paul says. Christ is what's important. So he's saying, don't focus on ethnicities. When he says, where there is no Greek or Jew, he means the distinction doesn't exist. So don't focus on those distinctions. They're not to look down on other people based on their culture or their ethnicity or their social status. They're supposed to look up to Christ and recognize they are all equal in him. 
This is the opposite, you may notice, of where we are headed in our society in 21st century United States of America, where some people are trying to be more woke than other people, trying to show how aware they are of ethnic and cultural differences, focusing on that all the time and acting like the most important thing about a person is what group they belong to. Paul is saying to the Colossians, don't focus on that. It's not relevant anymore. Let's go on to verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. These are all things we do to each other, or we hope we do. These are things that we must put on, like you put on clothes. And how can we do that? Why are we able to do that? He gives three reasons. We're, God chose them. They are holy. That is, they're set apart for God. And God loves them. These are three, three, three things that are already true about them. Now, he wants them to act like it. And note this, he says, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So that means freely, not grudgingly. We all know what that's like to act like for, we're forgiving somebody, but to do so grudgingly. Note that the word he uses here for, for forgive is a verb, an action word. It's the, it's the verb form of the word grace. They are to extend grace to each other in forgiving each other. In the Bible, there's other words for forgive also, but here he's using that word that's the same as the word for grace. Also, we should notice that all these things they're supposed to do to each other are things God has already done for us. Let's look at that list again. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Aren't those all the things that God has done for us? That's not all the things God has done for us, but every one of those he has, right? He's telling them to be godly, to be Christ-like. And note that they are to show true humility. Interestingly, he uses the same word for humility in twice in chapter 2 in verses 18 and 23. He warned them about the false humility the teachers were peddling. What's the difference? The false teachers were trying to reach up toward God by focusing on how humble they are, showing how humble they are by abstaining from things. Remember that passage, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. He says, why do you, why do you pay any attention to that? You're dead to that stuff. In doing so, they were focusing on themselves, on what they were doing. That makes it false humility. Humility that says, look how humble I am, is not real humility. It isn't. But in chapter 3, where he's talking about humility here, tells them, telling them to put on humility, it's this humility is about putting others first, focusing on them. That's true humility. In verse 14, let's read 14 and 15 together. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, 
to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Even love is something we're supposed to put on. And I think this is really interesting. He doesn't tell them to make the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. It's not something we do. It's something we let happen. It's not our doing. We can't do it, but we can sure prevent it. That's why he says, let it. And remember, the peace he's talking about here is not a lack of anxiety. That's not what he's talking about at all in this context. This passage is about how they treat each other. Notice how he said, in one body. So here Paul is talking about peace in the sense of shalom, and we've all heard that word, that sense of well-being. Well, he's telling them to enjoy that sense of shalom, well-being, as a group, as you let that shalom that Jesus produces um, uh, grow within your group. It doesn't have anything, he doesn't, this doesn't have anything to do with an individual feeling anxious or not anxious. That's, this isn't that kind of peace. And then he says, and this is the thing that brought, that really caught me when I f first started reading it earlier this summer. Then he says, be thankful. Not thank God often, but be thankful. It's being, it's like being faithful. It's not something you do once or twice or once in a while or often. It's how you live. It's a part of your character. It's who you are. And interestingly, this is something I had never noticed before either. After he tells them to be faithful, he's, he mentions faith and gra uh, grace and gratitude several more times in the following passage. Now he's going to talk to them about what it means to live a thankful life. And that, what he talks about there, begins right here at verse 15, at the end of verse 15, it goes right on through to partway through chapter 4. Let's look at that. First, he describes living gratefully as a group. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How many times have I heard this verse and I thought it was talking to me, to let the word of Christ dwell in me richly? Well, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, he's talking to them as a group. How does it dwell richly among them? Through their congregational singing. As they're singing the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, teaching and admonishing each other through them. That's a big part of what we do when we sing together. We are teaching each other and reminding ourselves not only about what God has done for us, but also what our response to what he's done should be. And what attitude do they do it with? Thanksgiving. They're to sing with an attitude of gratitude. Verse 17, he says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Notice he's still speaking to the whole group. And it's not just their singing, in their singing that they're supposed to be thankful, but in everything they do. Their gratitude to God should permeate everything they do and say and think. There he was talking to the whole group. Now he goes from the whole group to specific application for specific people. In the next few verses, he gives the, some examples of what this can look like for people in various situations. Verses 18 through 21, let's read them together. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. I've read these many verses many times before, but again, I never noticed the context that this is how they are supposed to be living and showing their gratitude to God. In each one of those, he's helping people avoid what they naturally would do, how they naturally would act, how an ungenerated, an unregenerate self would want to do. But the one that I think is the most fascinating and the most countercultural at their time and in ours is in verse 22. Starts at verse 22 and goes through verse 20, 25 when he talks to slaves or bond servants. Let's read those verses together. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. We already talked about slaves a little bit earlier and what slavery was about. Nobody wants to be a slave, and Paul assumed that a slave's natural inclination would be to work really hard, diligently, when the boss is looking, aware of what the slave is doing, and then to slack off when the boss isn't looking. But Paul says that's not the way a Christian bondservant acts. Interestingly, he uses both the word for heart and soul in these two in these two first two verses here. And in most of our English translations, the second one gets translated into heart. But anyway, he uses both of them. He's telling them, put your heart and soul into it. Imagine what a radical idea that was. No slave thought that way about his work. You did what you were supposed to do or much as you had to do, and that was it. But Paul wants them to remember their real boss, their real Lord, is Jesus. And Note that in Greek, the word for masters and Lord here are the same word. It's not two different words. I want to read that part again with that in mind, that those words are the same. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly lords, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. He mentions their earthly lords once, and he mentions the Lord Jesus four times. That's where their focus is supposed to be. When we first taught the translators to begin interpreting the Bible, one of the things we told them to watch for was the surprise especially when we were looking at Jesus' parables. A lot, of the, a lot of times, the surprise is the key to the whole thing. One example is when the master comes in and he serves the servants. Anyway, here in what Paul has to say to, to the slaves, there's a number of surprises, and maybe you've spotted some of them already. Maybe you've spotted them all. One is telling slaves to act like they really care about their work, like their real Lord Christ is the one they're working for. Now, that's a radical idea. Another is that they will get an inheritance. What? An inheritance? For a slave? Are you kidding? People who were slaves were people who went broke, 
couldn't go bankrupt because that didn't exist. They went broke. They had to sell themselves. If they were from the kind of family who would talk about inheritances, they had a family that could redeem them, pay what they owed, and get them out of their slavery. So to tell a slave that he's going to get an inheritance, that's just something they never, ever imagined anyone would talk to them about. But this is another example of not looking down or looking around at their circumstances, but looking up toward Jesus where he is, because he's the one who determines their reward. And here's another surprise. He's already given them one reason to work hard for their boss. It's Christ they are serving, but he gives a second reason. Did you spot it? Verse 25, I'll read again. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Well, who's the wrongdoer here? Who's, he, who's the wrongdoer he's talking about in the context here? He's talking about a slave who's being a slacker instead of a grateful Christian who pours his heart and soul into his work because his real Lord is Christ. Isn't that amazing? Slacking off at work is doing wrong in God's eyes. And when he says wrongdoer here, it's, un, uh, it's the same word as the opposite of righteous. It's unrighteous, which in our, I heard someone suggest recently that one way of understanding righteousness in our century, talking to people who speak our language at, in our time, integrity is one way of thinking about it. It's doing what's right even when nobody else can see what you're doing. Anyway, he's telling them, that being a slave is no excuse to do wrong. God's not going to show partiality to you for doing poor work just because you're a slave, Paul says. He shows no partiality. You don't get a pass on laziness or lack of good performance at work because you're, because you're part of what some people call in the 21st century an oppressed class. This is an extremely countercultural message in our country right now where it's popular to treat some people with what Paul calls partiality and do it on purpose based on a purpose, person's membership in a group that has a perceived oppressed status. I think this passage can really preach to people who are thinking in that way and to Christians who are getting sucked into that way of thinking. Paul says, baloney. God doesn't show partiality and we're not supposed to be focusing on who's part of what group anyway. Paul was definitely not woke. It's astounding to me that Paul speaks so extensively to slaves. He gives one verse each to wives, wives, husbands, children, fathers. I guess the guys get two because they're the husbands are also the fathers. They're mixed together. But anyway, but the slaves get several verses. What's the deal? Isn't that, doesn't that strike you as odd? It struck me very, very odd. But this is another example of looking up, focusing on the things above where Christ is. They are to focus on pleasing the boss they can't see, but who always sees them, and to look for the reward they can't see. By doing so, they will serve the boss that they can see, but who doesn't always see them. So for all the people that he listed earlier, the ones he mentioned earlier and the slaves too, they're to treat other people out of their thankfulness, out of their gratitude to God, not out of their resentment for the position that they are in. 
Every one of us here this morning can learn something from what Paul says to these slaves. Even those of us who are retired, we still have some responsibilities. Somebody's counting on us to do something, even if it's just work around the house. But let's focus on those of us who have a boss, those of us who are accountable to somebody else for the work that we do. Are we really doing our best? Are we really pouring our heart and soul in it? Or are we watching the clock? I'm watching the clock right now, but for a different reason. <laughs> because I want to work longer than I'm allowed. Anyway, are, you, are we just watching the clock, just filling time until it's time to go home from work? Or are we giving it everything we have? I think God expects no less of us in our work than he expected of slaves in the first century. We all know that our real boss knows at all times what we are doing and what our attitude is. How about asking him with, to help you with your attitude about your work? How about asking him how living with an attitude of gratitude would transform the way you think about your job and the way you perform it? How do I know that that might be a good idea? Well, <clears throat> I had a long time off from working on translation because of rebuilding our partnership team a couple years ago and then having heart surgery also around that same time. And I found myself wondering, what's it going to be like when I go back to my regular work? And I'd been away from it so long that it sounded like tediousness. It sounded like really hard work and it didn't sound like fun at all. So I asked the Lord to change my heart about it. I asked him to give me a love and passion for my work that would help me do the best job I possibly can. And he answered abundantly. I was surprised at the change in my own attitude as I was able to begin working with the translators again. Let's move on to verse 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, why does he tell the masters to do this? Because their natural inclination is going to be to treat them unfairly. Because the slaves can't do anything about it. They can't just say, well, pff, my boss is really terrible. I'm going to go work somewhere else. Wasn't an option. So that put masters in a really strong position. And Paul is saying that's not the way a Christian boss acts. He treats, him, he treats his bondservant justly and fairly. Let's read what he has to say a little bit more about thanksgiving and grace in verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, he says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best of the time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So here's two more places that grace and gratitude come up in this passage. Thanksgiving should permeate our prayers, the words we speak to God, and grace should permeate the words we speak to other, way, other people, the way salt permeates food. I mentioned earlier a saying that I saw when I was a young believer, an attitude of gratitude as an unending prayer. I had it on a card near my desk, and I have no idea where I got it. I even looked it up online recently, and I, I couldn't 
find it exactly said that way. I don't know where I found it. But anyway, it's true. If we're thinking about all Christ has done, and we're thinking about that not just in our heads but in our hearts, and if we respond to it with our mouths and with our actions towards others, our gratitude to Christ is an unending prayer. And it doesn't stop when we say amen. It doesn't stop at all. So what's the opposite of being grateful? What does that look like? Well, you all have seen it. You probably know somebody. It's complaining all the time. I have a friend, let's call him Barry. Barry seems to always see the cloud in the silver lining. <laughs> it doesn't seem to matter what the subject is. Barry will find a problem with it, a reason to complain. And he always seemed to do the opposite of being thankful. It was kind of painful to be around him because when you saw him, you knew any second now he's going to start complaining about something. So I think some people tended to avoid him. And to my shame, I have to admit, I did. I should not have tried to avoid him, but I did, even though we we're friends. Paul told the Galatians to live like grateful people. <clears throat> the opposite word of that be, you know, be grateful people word, the opposite of that word occurs once in the New Testament in Luke 5.35, where Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Jesus said that God is kind to the ungrateful. I should have been also. If we're grateful, but we try to avoid ungrateful people, we're falling into the same trap Paul was warning the Galatians about focusing on ourselves, thinking we're better than others. I am so much more grateful than so-and-so. Listen to him complain. Well, who am I focusing on? I'm virtue signaling, false humility. But we can also learn something else from the fact that we tend to like to avoid people who complain all the time. What we can learn from that is that people don't like hanging around with complainers. Negativity repels people. But if we have an attitude of gratitude, it makes you a joy to be around. People want to be with you. It attracts people. It attracts them to you and to the one who makes you thankful. I think an attitude of gratitude attracts other people because it produces joy. I was talking with Bonnie about this a few weeks ago as I was planning on speaking here. And she said, <clears throat> she had read about some research that shows that it's not joy that leads to thankfulness, it's the other way around. When we're conscious, cons consistently conscious, consciously reminding ourselves of all that God has done for us and expressing that thankfulness to him, it leads to joy in our own lives. And it affects the other people around us. Joy doesn't bring gratitude. Gratitude brings joy. Paul told the Colossians to live lives that are full of gratitude, and then he spelled out how that should spill out into their lives. How should gratitude spill out into your life? What would that look like? What can you do to let your God, gratitude to God grow? Well, the first thing is, tell them about it. 
Maybe we could let our first thought in the morning as we're waking up be, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for choosing me, for calling me to yourself. Thank you for redeeming me and raising me up with Christ. Thank you for my spouse and my family. And we can go on from there. If we're full of gratitude, it will spill out and permeate all we do. When I first started running the resort a few years ago, I started getting annoyed with all the maintenance involved. Those of you who have more than one building know exactly what I mean. I have other people doing almost all of that now, but at that time, I really had a bad attitude about it. It was getting pretty bad. I wasn't pouring my heart and soul in it because I resented the fact that I had to spend time doing that stuff. And I knew my attitude needed to change. And I don't know who gave me this idea. Maybe the Holy Spirit delivered it directly. But I decided that maintenance can be an expression of, of gratitude to God that I have been entrusted with the thing that I have to maintain. Thank you, Lord, for entrusting me with this thing. Here I am maintaining it, and I'm thanking you for it. You know, gratitude can grow on you as it grows in you. If you express gratitude when you know you should, even when you don't feel like it, eventually you will feel like it. That's why Paul says in this passage, put on the new self, put on love. It's something you do because you know you need to do it. And as you do act like you love somebody, many of you have experienced this. As you act like you love somebody, you begin to really love that person. And as you act like you're thankful, what starts out as an action that comes from your head gradually turns to an action directed by your heart. So if you can't get your heart into it today, at least get your head into it and let your heart follow. Don't follow your heart if it's going in the wrong direction. Lead your heart with your head by thinking about what God has done for you. That's part of what he gave us brains for, to store all that information that we need to remember about what he has done. In our thoughts, and our words, and our actions with other people, and in our work, whatever our work is, whoever our boss is, or whoever we're responsible to, if we're grateful, thankful in our work, it's going to show in all the things that we do. And that thankfulness will turn to joy, and it will attract other people to us and to the Lord. Let me pray for us all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it in our language where we can listen carefully to what you have said to us through Paul's letter to the Colossians. Thank you for all of that that you have done. We pray that you would make us a grateful people. Help us to remember all you have done for us and help us to be grateful for it. Please help us to practice that attitude of gratitude that can spill out into everything we do and say. And we pray you would make us a blessing to all we come in contact with. And we pray that people will be drawn to you because of the gratitude and joy they see in us. In Jesus' name.